And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. We're going to be talking about how to trade this bull, this kind of off-the-charts bull market that we've got right now. How do you navigate it? It's been a good question. I've got a lot lately here by email. So we're going to go kind of through that today. That article on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Also, uh, got to talk a little bit about economic reports coming out this week. We've got a couple of important ones this week in particular. Today, we're going to be looking at retail sales uh, this morning. Tomorrow is CPI. So these are kind of the two big numbers. Now, when we talk about retail sales, this is very important because you're going to see a number out today that may be better than expectations. And you're going to see a lot of headlines saying consumer remains extremely strong despite surging inflation. Be really careful with that because retail sales, when they're reported, are not adjusted for inflation. So what you're looking at today is the dollar volume. Now, now this is the important part to consider. You're looking at the dollar volume of retail sales. So think about it this way. You go to the gasoline station, right? And you pull up, you fill up your tank, and you pay, you know, $950 for a tank of gas. Okay. <laughs> okay, it's not it's not quite that much. It's like 700 But you get the point because of inflation, right? Inflation's up, so it's costing you more to fill up your gas tank. Now, those gasoline sales in dollars are reported from the gasoline station, right? Wherever you whether the convenience store, wherever you wherever you filled up they report their sales. So their sales, hey, our sales were up this month. We sold, you know, $10 million worth of gas last month. We sold $11 million worth of gas this month, whatever the number is, right? Whatever those numbers are. So it doesn't mean that you bought more product, right? You're just spending more for the same amount of product. And this is kind of a key point because when we're talking about economic growth long-term, it's about the volume of stuff that we produce that drives economic activity, not just what we pay for it. So in other words, you didn't buy any, any more gas, right? Your gas tank will only hold so much gas. Um, so you bought the same amount. It's kind of the same thing for groceries as well. So when you go to the store, you don't generally buy a whole lot more groceries. People generally kind of have the same list they buy every time they go to the store. They're just paying more for that. So when you see retail sales today, understand that those are being reported in nominal dollars and it's just that we're spending more for the same amount of stuff and that's because of inflation. So when the headlines come out and say the consumer is really strong, back that out a bit because inflation's running at 6% year over year. So in other words, if, as an example, let's say they come out today and they say on a year over year basis, retail sales are up 6%. Back out inflation of 6% and what were your retail sales on a year over year basis, right? Zero, which is exactly what you would expect. You're, you didn't buy any more stuff. You just paid 6% more for it. So there you go. Um, this is going to be a real issue, of course, as we kind of get further into this year and into next year. As long as this, you know, supply chain disruption kind of mess lasts, we're going to continue to see these higher prices and, of course, higher rates of inflation. And again, of course, on, on Wednesday, we'll actually see what the CPI number is. And as we've talked about before, for most individuals, 
you know, we talk about CPI at, at 5%, core CPI at, at you know, uh, you know, 3.5%, whatever it is, once you strip out food and energy, but people pay for food and energy. What they don't have price increases on, on a year-over-year -year basis, is healthcare and rent. Those things are, are pretty much fixed in terms of, you know, contractual obligations. If I rent an apartment for a year, my rent's the same for a year. It doesn't change every month during the year. If I have a mortgage payment on my house, well, my mortgage payment doesn't change, uh, you know, until I refinance the house. So those things will actually change. But if you take a look at consumer inflation, what consumers deal with, strip out housing and, and the inflation in housing and healthcare, because those things don't really change, the average individual is dealing with about 8.5% inflation. And that really shows what the average American is having to pay for on a day-over-day -day basis. And of course, wages aren't nearly keeping up with that run rate of inflation. So that's problematic. So keep a watch on these two numbers. They'll be important this week. They'll tell us a lot. Of course, the high, if inflation continues to run hot, that's going to be a problem for the Federal Reserve as they continue to try to, to you know, work through this tapering of the balance sheet first and not hike rates. But uh, inflation starting to push pretty hard uh, for them to start increasing interest rates. Uh, the other side of the, the, the story today is, of course, is that um, infrastructure bill was signed into law yesterday by President Biden. Of course, that was a big event up on Capitol Hill. Uh, bipartisan. And this is the probably the only bipartisan thing we'll see ever come out from, from politics in quite a while. Um, but the, the bipartisan infrastructure bill did come into place. Now, one thing that economists are trying to spin on this is that this will be a, this will help reduce inflation. Now, you have to think about this for a second. What's our problem with inflation right now in the country? Supply chains. And as we are trying to rebuild and reopen the economy, we've got a lot more demand than we have supply at this point. Of course, we have a lack of truckers. That's a big problem. We're about 80,000 short on truckers. And so if we're going to now throw another $1.2 trillion into the construction and rebuilding of America through this infrastructure building program, what does that require? That requires more labor, more commodities, more trucking, more shipping, more energy. The very things that are going up in price, we're now going to add more <laughs> demand on those very issues. So inflation, the, you know, the infrastructure bill is not deflationary. It's not going to reduce inflation. It's going to increase inflation in the short term. Now, the theory is, is that once we upgrade our ports and our airports and our roads and bridges, then that'll make transportation much easier and safer. And that will help in, you know, resolve the supply line issues. And eventually that will lead to slower inflation, lower rates of inflation. That's true, but that's going to be down the road when those projects are completed. Unfortunately, as we already know, because we saw this happen in 2008 when we passed the infrastructure bill under President Barack Obama. Shovel-ready jobs are not so shovel-ready. Um, as we talked about before, the infrastructure bill is fantastic. It's great. It's wonderful, whatever you want to call it. The problem is, A, is that these jobs and these projects are very hard to get up and approved and running. And even when they do, the input into these are spread out over years. So there's not really a big impact on economic growth. This isn't going to help create hundreds of thousands of jobs. It's not going to put millions of people to work. It's not going to do any of that because of the way it's spread out 
companies that are already doing these projects, they're the ones that'll get them. And generally these are the ones tied into government contracts. They're not gonna go out and hire you know, thousands upon thousands of new people. These things are spread out over time. And as we've seen and have witnessed in the past, it doesn't create, it's not the economic nirvana that is typically spun out when we're trying to spend more bill, spend more money. But the important thing about the bill is that regardless of whether they want to try to shelve it out and say it's 550 billion in new spending and we're using the other 500, 600 billion was you know previously approved COVID funding, that's fine. It's still all debt. And debt that is used in this manner is not going to create economic growth long term. And we have plenty of historical track record to prove that's actually the fact. So uh, those are kind of some of the big headlines this morning. When we come back from the break, we're going to get into the, the off the charts bull market, how to trade it, and answer the email question that we that uh, I received uh, yesterday. You know about this very issue. So we'll get into that after the break. I'm your host, Lance Roberts, for Real Investment Advice. Realinvestmentadvice.com is the website. Be sure to send your questions, comments, emails. Let us know what we can do to help you. We'll be right back. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Retirement's not what it used to be, and long-term care could enhance your golden years. The question is not whether you can afford it, but whether you can afford not to have it. Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Jonathan Penn and Chris Liebham for the basics of long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care december 9th at noon realinvestmentadvice.com the real investment show elon musk for president this is going to be my new write-in vote to uh, come up the next election cycle. And before you go off the rails here, just hold on a second. Let me explain to you why, because it's good for capitalism. Over the weekend, there was a bit of a Twitter exchange between Elon Musk and Bernie Sanders. But I have to go back a little bit in time here to talk about the brilliance of this conversation. And I don't even know if Elon Musk actually even realizes what he did here. And but as I got to thinking about what he what he said and, and we talk about where the economy is headed, of course, and, you know, this whole push by the social Democrats to try to change the capitalistic system to much more socialism in nature. I got to thinking about what Elon Musk said and why this is something that we should encourage more CEOs to do. And, I, and I'll tell you, the, the one thing about capitalism and we talk about capitalism on the show a lot because it's the, it's the goose that laid the golden egg. You know, we talk about, you know, the wealth that's been generated in this economy over the last, you know, 200 years relative to countries around the world that have been around much longer than the U.S. And the U.S. has wealth that is head and shoulders above every other country in the world. And there's a reason for that. And over the course of the last, you know, few years, and really ever since uh, Barack Obama took office, there's been a real push to get the wealthy to pay more in taxes, right? The wealthy need to pay their fair share. Well, it sounds great, right? And I'm just trying to get votes. So I say these 
idiotic things to try to really, you know, muster up the votes so people will vote for me. The wealthy pay about 90% of all the taxes already. So exactly what is their fair share? 100% of the taxes? Okay. It's not that much more than they're paying now. But it's not the tax rate that's the problem. It's the tax code that's the problem. And it's okay, though, because even let's just presume for a moment that the the wealthy pay 100% of the taxes, right? So the top 10%, they're going to pay 100% of the taxes. It's not going to make much different than difference than it is now. And guess who winds up still getting hurt? The guy at the bottom end. Because those at the top end, the top 10 and 20% of the economy, they're the ones that are the job creators. So you raise taxes on them. They're going to raise the cost of goods. And that gets passed down to the little guy who has to pay more. So whether or not the little guy, and look, the bottom 50% of the population pays no income tax, and and the the lower 20% actually get money back from the government every year, and they're still being impacted by taxes because of higher cost to them. And they have to pay more of their income for the things that they want. So it really doesn't, you know, a lot of this is just nonsense in terms of, policy but it is what gets votes right it gets it gins up the voter at, at the time of the election it's like yeah I, I want change i want a better fair tax system you know i want more stuff from the government and so of course you know we're trying to pass now these spending boondoggle bills of massive proportions and we want to give more people more money right we like this the social democrats like this right we want to give people more money free child care free you know paid leave and uh, you know all these other give me's right free college tuition all these things right we're going to give you more money sounds great somebody's got to pay for it who's going to pay for it the wealthy need to pay for it all these rich billionaires that don't pay any taxes they need to they need to pay for this Okay. Why don't billionaires pay taxes? Let's talk about Elon Musk for a second. We actually touched on this last week. If you have a major corporation publicly traded and you're a big shareholder, and as Elon Musk, you know, said in a tweet last week we discussed, he says, look, I don't have an income and I don't take a bonus. All I have is my stock. And, of course, we've talked about the problem with stock buybacks and these type of things because a lot of executives are – compensated a lot by stock but see the problem is they can't sell it because if they go out to sell it that impacts the markets right if if the market gets whiff that elon musk is selling his shares oh my gosh elon musk must think something's wrong with his company that's why he's selling his stock maybe i better sell too and the price goes down so what they do is they take their stock they go to the bank and you think if elon musk walks into a bank jp morgan is an example and and he says hey you know what i need like Five hundred million dollars. I want to buy a house and a jet and a car. You think a bank has any problem loaning them money? Of course not. They say, "Good, give me your stock as collateral, and you can have all the money you want." Right? You're worth one hundred eighty billion dollars. Sure, I'll loan you five hundred million on your stock. Charge you three percent interest. Now think about this for a second. I can get a loan from the bank at three percent interest against my stock, or I can sell my stock, potentially take the risk of driving the stock price down and pay twenty percent. For the privilege of selling the stock in the company that I built. Capital gains tax. What do you think they're going to do? 
It's what all rich people do. The rich, you know, CEOs of companies, they do this all the time. That's how they get their liquidity out of their business without actually selling their shares. But Elon Musk did something brilliant a couple of uh, last week. He said he went to Twitter and he said, hey, Twitter, is it OK if I sell some stock because I need to pay my taxes? <laughs> you know, there's this there's this whole movement now by the government. The government says, hey, you know, these rich people need to pay tax on their capital gains, even if it's unrealized. They haven't even realized their gain yet, but we need to tax them on that anyway. So if you have an unrealized gain, you're going to have to pay capital gains tax on that unrealized gain. And so Elon Musk said, okay, if you're going to tax me on my unrealized gains, I'll make it realized. I'll take it at 20%. Goes to Twitter, asks Twitter's permission. Twitter gives him permission. He sells it. The stock is down eh, 10, 11, 12% over the last couple of weeks. Now, he sold, it, he sold you know, $20 billion worth of stock, whatever it was. Stock price is down 10, 20%. Now, over the weekend... Now, so think about this for a second, right? So I'm a shareholder. Now the stock price is down, and it's because he sold shares. Okay, no, no problem with that, right? I understand what's going on. Nobody's panicking, but let me, let me bring something up to you. Ron Wyden, Democrat congressman. Whether or not the world's wealthiest man pays any taxes at all shouldn't depend on the results of a Twitter poll. It's time for billionaires' income tax. Of course, it didn't take long for Bernie Sanders to jump into the middle of this. He says, we must demand that the extremely wealthy pay their fair share, period. Awesome. This is why I'm voting for Elon Musk for president. He tweeted back to him. I keep forgetting you're still alive. That's not why. It was the second tweet that he followed up with. He says, want me to sell more stock, Bernie? Just say the word. Here's why this is a brilliant tactic. And it shows you what the risk is to what these social Democrats want, right? So we have all these people invested in the stock market. We've got the Fed trying to pop up, prop up the stock market. Bernie Sanders, I'm sorry, Elon Musk asked permission from Twitter to sell some stock, put, made it public notice before he ever so he says, look, I don't have an income or a bonus and if you want me to pay taxes and, and pay for I've got to sell some stock. Is it okay? Yes, it's okay, Elon. Sell some stock. He sold some stock. Man, public notice. And the stock is down 10, 11, 12%. Now, can you imagine what happens to the stock market now once these Democrats start to demand that these billionaires pay a tax on unrealized capital gains? They're all going to sell. You know what happens to the stock market? What Elon Musk said, want me to sell some more stock, Bernie? Just say the word. Stock's already down 10, 11, 12%. Want me to sell some more stock? No problem. I got $180 billion worth of stock to sell. What would be the price of Tesla if he continues to sell his stock? And then can you imagine what happens to the stock market and capitalism once you began to impose taxes on the wealthy on an unrealized capital gain basis and they all start selling without asking permission what elon musk did was show exactly what we've talked about on the show here numerous times he proved it we said look if you impose a tax the thing about the wealthy is is that they're very fungible 
they have their wealth in all different forms. And yeah, I'm Elon Musk can go to the bank and borrow money against his stock. And that income that he picks up from the bank loan is non-taxable. So he doesn't pay any tax on it. It's a loan that he pays back at some future date and time with his stock. When he sold $20 billion worth of his stock, do you think he paid off some of his loans? Probably. Freed up his credit lines. But see, this is what people in power don't understand. They don't understand that the wealthy have options. And, and they don't really care. The stock was free to them. You think I care if I have 180, you know, this is like the old lottery ticket, right? It's like, well, you know, if you win a billion dollars in the lottery, it's not that much money after you pay taxes, <laughs> right? <laughs> I got 180 billion bucks. You think I mind paying 20% in income taxes to liquefy that stock? I can't sell it, right? I'm Elon Musk. I can't sell my stock. Because if I do, I'll collapse the, the price of the company and I'll impact all my shareholders. and I'll impact the markets. I'm, I'm in the top six holdings of the S&P 500. Do you think that if I liquidate a bunch of my stock that the S&P 500 is going to be trading where it is today? No, of course not. The point is here. This is a good example. This is a shot across the bow for... These individuals touting these higher taxes on the wealthy. Let's go after those rich billionaires that own public stock. Let's go after Jeff Bezos. Yeah, I hope you liked your Amazon shares at the current price. Because uh won't be there for long if they get their way. Elon Musk for president. It's my thought. Be right back after the break. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com retirement's not what it used to be and long-term care could enhance your golden years the question is not whether you can afford it but whether you can afford not to have it our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement join jonathan penn and chris liebham for the basics of long-term care register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care december 9th at noon realinvestmentadvice.com you're listening to The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm Rose Lance Roberts. Michael Leibowitz joining me, talking a little bit about inflation, of course. That is the big topic from yesterday. Uh, big surge in inflation on a year-over-year basis. And the hope is, of course, that, uh, as everybody's hoping, is that inflation is transitory and magically it will just go away here shortly and we'll all be back to normal at, you know, precisely 2% inflation because that's what the Fed wants to have. And, you know, what's interesting is, is that the Federal Reserve actually believes they can actually control inflation or they have any influence over it <laughs> through <laughs> through their actions. Uh and basically, we go back in history and find out more than not that they're the cause of problems in the economy rather than the solution to it. 
and uh, just a function of, of financial mistakes all going all the way back to the early 80s, um, you know, through their actions. So, you know, it is interesting, though, that in 2010, and we've talked about this on the show before, Ben Bernanke made a very interesting statement in the process of launching the second round of quantitative easing. So stepping back a second, um, in 2000. You know, eight. We had the financial crisis. Then, then in early, uh, really kind of late 2008, early 2009, we started the first round of this new monetary policy process called quantitative easing, and this was a fancy term for basically the government monetizing debt. And and this was you know kind of the the new intervention, and that was to be about a trillion dollars worth of activity. And it was scheduled to end. It had a, a scheduled start date and an end date. It was scheduled to end in June of 2009. And so when we got to that point and quantitative easing started to roll off, all of a sudden the market started to decline again and the markets were down 10, 15 percent. And, and the, that was when Ben Bernanke came out and said, look, we need another round of quantitative easing. And the reason we're doing this is to help spur asset prices because higher asset prices increase consumer confidence. And if consumers are confident, they'll go out and spend more money, and that helps economic growth. And this was the first moment where there was a verbal acknowledgement of a third mandate. Now, the two mandates of the Federal Reserve are making sure there's not a runaway inflation and making sure we have full employment. That's their that's their congressional mandate. Well, now they added this third one. This was a new verbal acknowledgement of this third mandate, which was to support asset prices. Well, here we are, you know, 12 years later, roughly, and markets are, you know, at all-time highs, and we are now in the process of doing $120 billion a month to help support asset prices. And the Fed is now finally acknowledging that, well, maybe valuations are a bit excessive here, but we're not going to do anything about it at this point because we still need to maintain these monetary policies to help support asset prices. Now, this is the point we left off with. The biggest problem for the asset markets is higher interest rates. You start hiking interest rates, as I said early in the show this morning, you know, in a highly leveraged economy, interest rates have everything to do with outcomes and it has everything to do with economic growth. So hiking rates does exactly what you would expect it to do. It will slow economic growth. If you slow economic growth, earnings slow. If earnings slow, well, valuations and overvalued stocks become a problem. Mike, um, so summing all that up and, and coming to you, this is kind of what you touched on in your article yesterday. And this is why we're talking about the Fed being in a bit of a trap here is they're really kind of caught in between this issue of hiking rates to, to slow down inflation but if they do that, they're going to have a problem in the stock market. Exactly. And, you know, let's kind of look at their two mandates. It's stable prices and maximum employment, right? We don't have to discuss prices. We we all know they're anything but stable, right? CPI is running 6%. And even the Fed, you know, even Powell is telling you that prices are elevated and may stay that way for a while, mm -hmm. right? So they clearly should be doing work to control prices. By work, I mean raising interest rates and stopping QE yesterday, right? But they lean on maximum employment. We're not at maximum employment yet. And when you look at the traditional measures of the unemployment rate, we're pretty much there, right? right? It's 4.6. The average over the last five years was 4.4. It's not quite to where we were at late 2019, 
But if you go back and look at history, we're well below average and we're at the average of the last five years. Right. But but Powell will say, well, you need to look at alternative measures because there's nothing you know, normal about what's going on. And, and that's a fair point. So the BLS also publishes the U6, which includes all the people unemployed in the traditional unemployment rate, plus those that are disparaged, those that are working part time and want full time jobs. And that number is actually below the average of where it was in the five years leading up to uh, the pandemic. Right. So by that measure, and again, it's also at the lows of the last 20 plus years. So by those kind of more traditional measures, employment is back to maximum levels. He likes to lean on the participation rate. So how many people are working out of the entire population? And if you look at it, he's correct that it it has dropped and it's only recovered about halfway from where it was. The problem with that is that, like I said, we were talking about consumer behaviors, employee behaviors have changed too. Many people want to stay at home and take care of their kids. It's too expensive to have childcare, and they they have done the math and they are willing to leave the workforce to take care of their kids. A lot of older people have decided to retire, right? They, they were planning on it anyway. Maybe they sped it up a year or two. They don't want to go back to the office and they're comfortable, right? We also have talked about what's called the quits rate. So how many people are quitting jobs because they think they can get a better job, higher paying job, whatever it may be, better location, whatever they're looking for? Well, that rate is up 0.6%. So if you just subtract that from unemployment, we're well below averages. But if you factor all that in, the participation rate is probably exactly where it was, if not even slightly better than before the pandemic. So I think it's my opinion is that we have maximized employment. And then you just look at like how many jobs or how many uh, jobs are available versus the number of people unemployed. And it's we're approaching two to one. Mm -hmm. Right. This is about as robust a workforce as we can have. So so the question is, what is the Fed doing? And Lance, you talked about this. They've created their third mandate, not Congress, but them financial stability. Right. And to them, that means higher asset prices. But what they fail to understand is that things may seem very stable right now, but they're actually incredibly unstable because valuations are over twice anything that's normal, right? We have valuations that are in line with 1999 and above that of 1929, right? So, so you know, every day we go on, oh, the markets are great. They're going up. They're very stable. Everything seems hunky-dory. But that's not the fact. They're creating an incredible amount of instability in the markets. Again, prices are very are running really hot right now, and employment is maximized. So again, this all comes back to why are they possibly dragging their feet so much to not to to stop raising rate to not raise rates and to reduce QE? And I think the answer is they don't want to deal with that with the financial markets and what's going to happen when stocks when when stocks reprice to normal levels, when bond yields reprice to normal levels and all other assets, including housing as well. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and again, you know, this is one of the interesting things, I, I think. And this goes back to, you know, they've had repeated attempts at this 
over the last you know really decade and and you know we go back to 2018 and and you know the federal reserve had started in 20 really 2016 starting to taper their balance sheet um you know had balance had gotten down to where they were just rolling over maturing bonds they weren't expanding their balance sheet but they weren't really reducing it either and then 2018 they actually started tapering off their balance sheet as and and, and were hiking interest rates so they were actually removing that monetary policy you know, from the system. And of course, you know, in September, they go, well, we're not anywhere near the neutral rate. The market declines by 20%. And by December, they're talking about, okay, we're not going to hike rates anymore. And, and you know, we're you know going to get this thing straightened out. And it was in June of the next year, they went back to zero in interest rates because of, of the markets. So, you know, they keep getting themselves in this position. And I think they're doing it backwards because the first thing they do is they take away the quantitative easing, which is supporting asset prices, and then they go, okay, we're going to take away that part, and then we're going to hike interest rates. Well, what they should be doing is keeping the $120 billion a month going right now, hike interest rates, and allow that monetary liquidity to support asset prices while they're hiking interest rates and trying to quell the inflationary problem. It seems to me they do this backwards. Hike interest rates first and then take away the monetary punch bowl. And then by that time, hopefully stocks can kind of figure it out and, and kind of reprice themselves gradually rather than having a shock revaluation like you had in 2018. All right. I would actually argue that the problem with raising rates is that there is such an incredible amount of leverage in the system, especially at an institutional mm-hmm. level. Yep. And all that leverage is predicated on zero rates. They pay nothing to borrow money. So taking on leverage is very easy. So as soon as you start raising rates, you, you start increasing the price, the cost of leverage, mm-hmm. and that they'll decrease leverage, which is forced selling. So, you know, they're really trapped here, Lance. Well, you know, and look, and this, and this goes to the whole idea of, you know, I was reading an interesting article about, you know, talking about leverage. Uh, interesting article yesterday, you know, this, this whole idea of we need to tax the rich more, right, because they just make way too much money. Take a look at Elon Musk. You know, Elon Musk can't sell it. You know, he had to go to Twitter to get permission to sell his shares because if he was just selling them on his own, he would have tanked the stock. Everybody lose confidence. Oh, Elon Musk must be losing confidence in Tesla because he's selling his shares. So he goes very public to sell his shares. Um, and he says, look, I've got to sell shares in order to pay taxes. Uh, well, if he doesn't take a salary or a bonus, where is he getting his money? You'll be surprised how this works out for a lot of uber rich people. We'll talk about that right after the break. Don't go away. news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com retirement's not what it used to be and long-term care could enhance your golden years the question is not whether you can afford it but whether you can afford not to have it our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement join jonathan penn and chris liebham for the basics of long-term care register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care december 9th at noon realinvestmentadvice.com the real investment show
And welcome back to the show this morning. So big news uh, earlier this week was Elon Musk going on to Twitter asking, you know, Twitter basically, and he had almost 4 million responses saying, hey, would it be okay if I sold 10% of my shares? Um, as an individual, I don't take a salary or a bonus from from work and you know all my wealth is basically in shares and if you want me to pay taxes and of course this was kind of a jab at you know the the idea of the Biden administration to tax capital gains and to really go after these rich people because you no know, they don't pay any taxes there's a reason they don't pay taxes and Elon Musk is a great example of why as an individual he doesn't pay taxes all his wealth as he says and he's correct about this all his wealth is in his stock, right? Uh, the stock of his company. And he doesn't take a salary and he doesn't take a bonus from a company. So how does he live? Well, as most of these uber rich individuals do that have publicly traded company stock, they go to the bank and they borrow the money. So they're more than ha- a bank. Look, if you're if you're Elon Musk and you walk into the bank of JP Morgan and and you know, or you know, Wells Fargo the criminal enterprise, whatever, um, they'll be will. They are more than they will bend over backwards to loan you millions of dollars against your company stock for three percent interest or two percent interest or whatever the going rate is. So these very rich people they buy houses and cars and jets and all this other type of stuff on the loans against their company stock because if they sell their company stock, they've got to pay what twenty percent in taxes on on those gains. And so this idea that, you know, and, and this is why, and let me back up one second, the re, and this is why they don't pay any income taxes, because the loans aren't income, they're loans. So there's no taxes due on that income, right? Because it's not income, it's, it's, they've borrowed the money against their company stock. Now, at some point down the road, they'll sell their company stock, pay off the loans, and then it's all fine and dandy. But this is, but what was interesting for Elon Musk is that he went to Twitter, said, hey, look, I don't take any salary. And, and, and the government's talking about taxing my capital gains. So kind of, he was actually kind of asking permission, hey, would it be okay if I sell my stock? Because as an insider of the company, then think about Jeff Bezos, think about all, all the other you know, heads of these companies that are highly compensated through stock options and stock grants. If they start selling their shares and just kind of behind the scenes, again, the market looks at that as like, oh, my gosh, what's Elon Musk thinking? What's Jeff Bezos thinking? And they, they must think there's something wrong with the company. And then everybody starts selling their shares and the stock price goes down markedly, which, you know, the owners of these companies don't want because they're compensated by their stock. They build their wealth through rising stock option compensation as the prices go up. So. What was what was brilliant about Elon Musk asking Twitter if he could sell his, uh, sell some shares is that he got approval. So it's not that you know he's selling shares because he thinks something's wrong with the company. He asked permission. This was something that's never been done before by a CEO of a company, and uh, four million people said, "Sure, go ahead and and, and sell some shares." Uh, stock was down, you know, probably ten percent day before yesterday as. Uh, both him and his brother sold $5 billion worth of shares. So now Elon Musk has $5 billion cash. Now he'll pay a billion of that in taxes, but he'll have $4 billion in cash. Now you can't really, look, $4 billion is not that much money. You really can't live a lifestyle on $4 billion. But, you know, hey, it's, it's some left pocket change if you need it. Mike, your thoughts? I'd like to try. I'd like to try to live on a billion or two. 
<laughs> see if I can make it. I, I don't. I don't know. With you know, my wife's shopping uh, bonanza on Christmas trees this year. I don't know if I, I need at least two billion. <laughs> right. But 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 Lance, don't you agree that there's a problem? It's not. It's not. I don't think that collecting taxes on unrealized gains is the answer. But shouldn't Elon Musk be taxed in some way? Right. I know he'll get taxed ultimately, or his estate will get taxed. Mm -hmm. But why is it that the working man, almost everyone, pays taxes on their income and Elon Musk and others pay zero taxes? Shouldn't they pay taxes when they receive options or they receive shares? Well, this is and that's a great question. Right. Um, you know, look, as we always say, you know, what's always important to remember is like if you don't like the game. Right. Don't hate the player. Change the game. Right. And, right. you know, the tax code is the problem. The tax code says and classifies what income is. And since the mid 90s, when we reinstated stock options and, and look, uh, stock, op, you know, stock buybacks by corporations, those were illegal until 1990. Um, and now we've reinstated stock buybacks. We've, you know, and, and then when Bill Clinton came in and said, hey, you know, we need to, to rein in CEO compensation. Now, this is an important point to, to, point to what Mike is saying. Prior to 1998, most CEOs were compensated through salary and, and and bonuses, right? So they were paying taxes. And then in the late 1990s, Bill Clinton said, well, <clears throat> you know, we're going to limit CEO pay to a million dollars. And then this is when Wall Street really came around saying, okay, fine, limit them to a million dollars in, in, uh, in income. We'll just do it all through stock options and grants. And that was the workaround for compensating CEOs to a tremendous degree, much more so than actual pain. And if you had left things alone, there's a cap to how much income can be paid out to a CEO because it's what happens at the bottom line. It's the cash that's left over, right? So with, with stock options, though, you can create vast amounts of wealth because of the leverage that is imputed inside of a stock option on stock prices. So CEOs got vastly wealthy on the stock options, which would have never occurred under a normal salary scheme that we had, but the, you know, previously to 1998. So, you know, the best of intentions to try to fix this compensation, you know, boondoggle we've got continues to make things worse. So now we're going, okay, well now they're all compensated in stock. They're vastly wealthy. They're not paying any taxes. Well, you know, this is what you did to yourself, you know, Pay a salary, have the board of approve, you know, the board of, of shareholders, you know, approve these salaries for CEOs and, and compensation will come down naturally. But to your point, Mike, now I, I, I digressed, but to your point, yeah, sure. Tax the uh, the stock options, you know, at issue date. But here, excuse me. Here's the other point. The other consequence is that you're now paying and you have been for 20 years, 20 plus years paying CEOs and shares, right? Their full, their only incentive right now is to get the share price up, which is fine. Right. Right. Which is why 40% if, of stock of reported earnings are fudged by CFOs and CEOs of corporations. Right, right, right. If your goal is to get them up by increasing your earnings and productivity and making a bigger company, that's great. That in theory and textbooks is how it's supposed to work. Mm -hmm. But in the real world, it works by jawboning the markets by buying back your own stock and doing whatever it takes to get the stock higher today and tomorrow. 
and a lot of times at the expense of 10 years from now. Right. And then, look, and let's, let's be honest, the Fed's been a crucial backbone in making sure that we inflate asset prices. You know, and, right. and, and we talked about this previously. Look, if you left the market to its own devices, the market would be around 2800 not 4700 The The differential is stock buybacks. Right. And, you know, that has been supported by low interest rates. And that's also been supported by massive amounts of monetary liquidity. Tesla wouldn't be trading at $1,000 a share, you know, had we not had all this liquidity injection by the Fed. It's just, uh, and really even by the government, these $1,400 checks, the, the, the stimulus, you know, pumped into the market last year has led to this low interest rates have led to, have led to a massive amount of leverage uh, by investors into the stock market as well. So, again, you know, we, we're all sitting around complaining about making these CEOs uber wealthy, but it's the very policies that are run by the Fed and the government and, and the markets that are creating that problem. So, you know, again, right. you know, what are we trying to what are we really trying to accomplish here? If we really want to accomplish something, let's fix the markets. The markets will fix CEO compensation directly. Right. And this is when I was talking about financial stability, this is the instability that is happening right now. Right. It's what you just said. Mm -hmm. The true value without buybacks is what, 2800 Yep. And we're at 4600 ish Yeah, 46, 4700 4, It's 40% 40, it's 40 difference. Right. There's your instability. Right. Last time we had instability like this was the 1920s when buybacks were legal. Same thing happened, right? If we go back to August of 29, everyone would say, oh, the system's great. It's so stable. Stock prices go up every day. Everything's wonderful. We've reached prices a permanently high plateau. Exactly. And that's exactly <laughs> what didn't happen. Uh, right. And that's when buybacks were banned after 1929. And then they came back to life. Um uh, but again, what, the, the it came 90s. back. To, they, these things came back to life at the request of corporations and really driven by Wall Street. You know, Wall right. Street was demanding these things. So, you know, this is and again, you know, we keep focusing on the wrong issues. Um, you know, we keep focusing on the, you know, well, you know, these rich people. Look, okay, let's take away all of Jeff Bezos' wealth. Let's take away all of Elon Musk' wealth and let's pay off the debt with it. You won't even notice a bump. <laughs> on, right. on the on our you know national debt that's out there that we've reduced it by and then who are you going to go get money from right now you've, right. you've you've wiped out all the wealth of all the rich people in the world so where else are you can get wealth from and now they have to close down their businesses because they have no money so now we've lost all those jobs who's going to create the jobs right and now once you've taken away the incentive to take risks to create jobs and be an inventor and be an innovator in the economy then what do you have you know and this is this is the problem again you know, you can drive the roots of inequality all the way back to Wall Street, which is where it all begins. And, and you know, instead of f focusing and fixing Wall Street, we keep trying to fix the end result of, the, of what Wall Street has done, which is trying to tinker around with tax codes and, you know, trying to fix a little problem here or there. But it all, you know, the cancer starts at Wall Street and we keep trying to cure the symptoms of it. So, you know, that's that's the problem. Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. That is The Real Investment Show. We'll be back to, uh, tomorrow morning for Financial Fitness Friday with Richard and Danny and then realinvestmentadvice.com.
Retirement's not what it used to be, and long-term care could enhance your golden years. The question is not whether you can afford it, but whether you can afford not to have it. Our next Virtual Lunch and Learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Jonathan Penn and Chris Liebham for the basics of long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our Virtual Lunch and Learn on long-term care. December 9th at noon, realinvestmentadvice.com.